Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, producer Jay here, and we're playing another episode of the show that came before Darts and Letters today, Cited. Our theme this week is left opinion makers, and today those opinion makers are not individuals. They can be things or groups of people. There's a few opinion makers in this documentary, but there's one at the centre of it, The Pavilion, which gives this episode its title. Expo 67 in Montreal was Canada's 100th birthday party, and one of the big opinion makers there was the Indians of Canada Pavilion. Not my word, they chose the word Indians, that's the word that was used at the time. This pavilion was the first time the Canadian government allowed indigenous people to have a say in telling their own story, which meant it was the first time that settler Canadians had to confront Canada's genocidal story. In the 60s, indigenous children were actively being stolen from their families and put into the residential school system. And this is a pavilion in 1967. This episode, though, came out in May 2020, and I was just listening to it the other day. And what struck me is that as horrific as the descriptions of residential schools are in this episode, it was still produced before there was that wave of discoveries of unmarked graves at residential school sites across the country. Over 700 sets of remains were found at one site alone in Saskatchewan. So listen to this episode in that context. As bad as we thought the residential schools were, we now have the evidence to prove they were even worse than that. You'll also hear our former co-worker Polly Legere co-host this episode with Gordon. Polly worked with us at Sighted Media to produce the Sighted podcast. They're off studying plants and making podcasts elsewhere now, but we still miss them and the wonderful stories they produced. Including this one, here's Sighted, The Pavilion, with Polly Legere and Gordon Katick. Quick note on language before we get going. You're going to hear us use the term Indian in reference to indigenous people. This story we're about to tell you was set in the 60s. And when we use that term, we use it because that was the political context. We'll be quoting government documents and talking about government departments that use the term Indian. People had so much anger. You know, why? We haven't done anything wrong. I'm Gordon Caddock. And I'm Polly Lugier. This is Cited. How do we tell the people who we are? We say... Yeah, because they've, ne- they've never heard my dulcet tones before. No, they haven't. Who are you, exactly? Uh, my name's Polly. I'm a new producer on the show, and I, uh, yeah, thrilled to be here. Welcome, Polly. Welcome. I'm very excited for this story, which is sort of about a big Canadian event. Um, and the, one of the things, you know, before we talk about the event that you're going to talk about, I want to say, I think what, like, non- uh, Canadians, like what Americans don't know about Canadians is that we're like the most embarrassing people in the world. Yeah. Like if there's ever an opportunity for us to create something totally cringeworthy. Oh, um, we're going to do it. We'll do it. We'll do and it. And we'll love it. <laughs> we will love it. Like the opening of the Sky Dome in Toronto, which is like our big stadium in Toronto. Whew, <laughs> incredible. I mean, how many songs can you write that are roof-based? I don't know, but they they managed to write a few. (laughs) How many dances can you choreograph that are about a roof opening? (laughs) (laughs) And then, in the middle of it, the roof malfunctioned, and it rained on them, and they couldn't close it. So the whole friggin' point of like, okay, we've got this fancy new technology. The other thing... It's always like about the future. So, you know, oh, you got Sky yeah, Dome um, and at, at Expo 86 in Vancouver, Sky Train, Sky you know, Train, Space Something Tower, here. Geodesic Dome. 
Yeah, Geodesic Domes have been a staple of expos around the world. It's all the way up on Space Tower and a free fall ride to the bottom. Um, there's also Calgary 88. <gasps> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this is good. <laughs> so you, you got this marching band. They're wearing, because it's clearly really cold, so they've got yeah. a full, like, jumpsuit type thing. Oh, my God. Uh, with tassels coming off of it. Fringe. Oh my god, the fringe. Yes. And then there's like a, an inflatable dinosaur. Oh, because there's dinosaurs in... Okay, now I get the reference. But there's like people in like chicken dinosaur costumes who are <laughs> dancing. Oh, and they just came oh, the out of lasso. a huge egg. Okay, okay, go up to like 149. You've got like um, indigenous people on horseback. So people are wearing uh, regalia. It's Indians, stagecoaches, horses, lassos, and the acrobatics that go with them. Ooh, unfortunate. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, how much is like in these like opening or like these big like kind of like raw raw jingoistic events? Like, are you including indigenous people the way they want to be seen or mm. not are you including them as like a party favor through the lens that you want to see them does that make right. sense what, what's the story of actually those indigenous people that are there like did they agree to this why did they agree to this what say did they have and how they were portrayed and what um, do they want to say themselves and like what did the like larger apparatus like keep them from saying you know and that is exactly what this documentary is about Oh, what a coincidence. The thing we were talking about is what we're going <laughs> to... This story starts with one of the biggest events Canada has ever hosted. The 1967 World Fair. Basically, a fair or an expo. It's sort of a trade show, but they are a lot more than that. It's a place where countries can show off how they want to be seen by the rest of the world. And this is especially true for Expo 67 in Montreal, Quebec. Because Expo 67 was a birthday party. It was the centerpiece of Canada's 100th anniversary celebrations. It was a chance for Canada to shed its country bumpkin image, to really shine on the world stage. No longer would Canada be seen as a cold hinterland. It wanted to be seen as exciting, powerful, and progressive. The metropolis of the world. And no expense was spared. It cost $280 million. That's $2 billion in Canadian currency today. Nearly double what the Olympics cost in Mexico City a year later. Montreal, to the whole world, Canada says, come to the fair. Expo 67, greatest trade exhibition in history, is open. People could not get enough. This song you've been hearing? It was the number one song in the country. Even the Ed Sullivan Show broadcast from the fairgrounds. Ed Sullivan Show. Opening our Expo show, we have something for the youngsters. Australia's talented recording combination, The Seekers. By the time it closed, 50 million people had visited Expo. Only 20 million people lived in Canada at the time. Expo was full of pavilions showcasing different countries and different regions of Canada. But there was one pavilion that had a distinctly different feel to it. The inverted pyramid of Canada, and on this side of it, the wigwam, the stylized teepee of the Indians of Canada. A very open and breezy and airy pavilion it is, with the main structure being built in the form of a teepee. And, uh... The Indians of Canada Pavilion. It was a hundred-foot-tall glass and steel teepee. And unlike the other pavilions, it wasn't celebrating a country. It was questioning one. The pavilion challenged Canada's national creation myth. The story of the pavilion is an unusual glimpse into how public history is made. Normally, you'd think that the state and their hand-picked historians just put these kinds of things together. But that's not exactly what happened here. 
Canada let a different kind of historical expert take part, actual Indigenous people. But what happens when the state gives power to those it's oppressed? And just how much power are they really willing to give? Montreal is generally known for its attractive women, but this year the situation has become ridiculous. Aside from the local lovelies, there's Expo with its hostesses from Canada and 60 other nations. And to find out how the girls... Expo was staffed by hostesses, who, as you just heard, were mostly beautiful young women. They acted as kind of ambassadors slash tour guides. Hi, my name's Barbara Wilson. My Haida name is Kay Ildjus. And I'm one of 13 girls who worked at Expo 67, Indians of Canada Pavilion. Barbara's in her 70s now. She showed me a picture from her 76th birthday when she went surfing with her daughters. The only thing you can see peeking out of the hood of her wetsuit is this huge grin. She still lives in Haida Gwaii, an island off the west coast of British Columbia. That's where she grew up. I quit school in grade 11 and I came to Vancouver and got a job. By the time Barbara's in her early 20s, she's working odd jobs in Vancouver while going back to college. She wants to be a science teacher. Then she hears about a summer gig. My dad phoned and asked me if I wanted to go to Montreal. I didn't even know where Montreal was at that point. But I said yes. I thought my dad was going to send me. And he told me to go down to the Department of Indian Affairs and apply for this job at Expo 67. I didn't know what Expo 67 was. The government was looking for women over 18 to work at the pavilion. And the job had nice perks, dental, paid vacation, and the promise of cultural activities in the city. All you had to do was fill out an application and submit your photo. It sounded like it could be fun. A summer in Montreal? Why not? So Barbara applies, and she makes it, beating out hundreds of other women. As 1967 kicks off, Barbara travels to Montreal for training. At 23, she's one of the oldest hostesses selected. So it was January, it was cold and slushy, very uh, gray, dirty snow, which I wasn't used to. Barbara and the other 12 young Indigenous women had to get extensive training because these women were going to be the face of the pavilion. They had to be modern, beautiful, and of course, non-threatening. We did uh, French immersion for three months. Uh, we did history, modeling, makeup. We actually had to sit down and learn how to use forks, knives, and spoons. Wait, so they thought that this cohort of, like, grown women yeah. needed to be taught how to use forks, knives, and spoons? Of course. we. You know, you didn't know where we were going to go. What if we went to a official thing? and didn't know how to copy somebody or whatever, you know. <laughs> yeah. Barbara and the other hostesses had to do way more training than the women at other pavilions. When you read between the lines, you can see that the government that hired Barbara didn't think Indigenous women were cultured enough to interact with the public. But there's another reason these women had to do so much training. The government wanted to be sure of the message that was being put out at the Indians of Canada Pavilion. The department gave Barbara and the other hostesses a little booklet that outlined what they were supposed to tell the public. It was the story of Indigenous Canada, or at least a version of it. That little booklet that I conveniently left behind. Um, we were supposed to learn that. I didn't. Why not? Because I felt that there was another history. Um, I looked at the things. I looked at all the things that we, we didn't talk about, you know. 
That little booklet is an amazing document, both for what it says and for what it doesn't. So I'm going to tell you the story of who wrote it and who gave it to Barbara. First, a bit of context. In Canada, the federal government controls much of what First Nations can and cannot do. They do this through the Department of Indian Affairs. Now, it's not called that anymore. It's changed its name. But that's what it was called then. In the mid-60s, the head of Indian Affairs is this guy, Arthur Lang. He definitely has a father-knows-best approach with Indigenous people. In a letter to a colleague, he wrote, The prime condition in the progress of the Indian people must be the development by themselves of a desire for the goals which we think they should want. Barbara only met him once, but she isn't a fan. He was a snug. I have pictures of me standing beside him, and he had my, his hand on my back, and he was rubbing it up and down, and I was trying to smile while we were having these pictures taken. That was my experience. Indian Affairs had long tried to assimilate Indigenous people. But then came the 60s. The civil rights movement was active in the United States, and the British Empire was decolonizing. Times were changing. Canada had to do the same. So it gave some Indigenous groups basic civil rights, like the right to vote, the right to hire a lawyer, and the right to practice cultural traditions that have long been banned. So Expo 67 comes around, and the department is struggling to figure out what to do. There's a flurry of internal memos about it. One warns that ignoring Indigenous voices would be, quote, politically unthinkable. So they get an idea. Why don't we create an Indians of Canada pavilion? It would showcase just how progressive Canada had become. But they aren't even sure Indigenous people will be interested. Another memo says, quote, Indians do not seem to have caught the pride of belonging to Canadian society, nor the enthusiasm for contributing to its national enrichment. So they come up with a plan, and it starts with this guy named Bob. Ah, my father, Robert Marshbanks, was uh, one of the people involved in the production. And he's the guy who uh, wrote the storyline in the end. This is Robin Marchbanks. Bob's son. So the whole path, the whole narrative that you get from the time that you go into the pavilion until you finally leave uh, was something that he helped put together. Bob is a white guy, a Scottish immigrant who grew up in Toronto. He's working as a freelance journalist. Did he know a lot of Indigenous people before he did this this project, do you think? I doubt that he did. I can't think how. Um, he liked the outdoors, and I'm sure he had an awareness. And I think that... Um, in the culture that he grew up, he'd be aware of all kinds of bits and pieces of things. But I think that what he would have been aware of would always have been processed through somebody else's interpretation, and it would have come through popular culture one way or another. Most of what I learned about Bob, I found in his unpublished memoirs. Indian Affairs asked him to figure out what should be in the pavilion's actual exhibit, what it should say, and what the marketing plan should be. Here's Robin reading his dad's account of what he told Indian Affairs. You need a storyline, and that has to be the story that's being told uh, inside the, the pavilion. And the main emphasis was that the pavilion should be an Indian statement, not a white man's notion of what would be romantic, and that it should be seen to be an Indian statement. That's what Bob tells the department. Let Indigenous people speak for themselves. And then the guy he's speaking with turns back to Bob and asks, Well, how about you write the storyline? And my dad says, Well, no, I was just kind of getting the big picture for you here. I didn't have it in mind to, you know, do this in, in addition. So he said, Well, no, but what would it take for you to do the storyline? And so my dad said, You know, here would be my terms. I want to go and consult freely as much as I think is necessary with different people in different communities all across the country and figure out, it's your pavilion. What do you want to say? What's the message? This is one of the first times in Canada that anyone has even asked to do something like this. 
to meet and speak with indigenous communities before making something about them. It just wasn't done in the 60s. Not by historians, not even by journalists. I'm not sure why Bob insisted on involving indigenous voices, but regardless, he got his way. So Bob has a mission, meet with indigenous people across the country and turn what they say into a storyline, which will become that booklet that Barbara has. He's going on a cross-Canada trip to meet with Indigenous communities, which is a huge undertaking. So he needs a partner. Hey, my name is Andrew Tanahoga. They, the little Tanahoga, they mean shooting the rapids, mm-hmm. riding the rough water, if you want to use that term, which is what, what I did most of my life, riding rough waters. And, uh... Andrew is a Mohawk Grand Chief from Gananage, a nation right across the river from Montreal. He's also the official head of the Indians of Canada Pavilion, and he's going to be Bob's guide on this journey. A few years before Andrew died, he sat down with grad student Romney Copeman, who lent me his tape. As the interview starts, Andrew makes his terms for speaking with Romney extremely clear. If I talk about my history, I don't want anybody interfering and say, well, this book says this, this book says that. Right. It's my history I'm telling, and that's the one I'm telling. Right. So take it or leave it, you know yeah. what I'm saying? That ethos, it could pretty much sum up the trip he and Bob were about to go on. In every place they visit, they ask the same question. What do you want to tell the people of Canada and the world at Expo 67. Again, here's Bob's son, Robin. He's reading from his dad's memoir. I remember the meeting in Montreal when a young, excited chief was cataloging the white man's sins. They stole our lands, alienated our children. They're destroying the environment. At this point, he turned towards me and explained apologetically, I don't mean Bob. They're unlikely allies, this Mohawk chief and a journalist who didn't even know indigenous people. But Andy... That's what everyone calls Andrew. And he vouches for Bob. He brings him into places that Bob's never been before. And they become friends. At the end of a typical day, everyone would go back to a hotel room and relax. Basically break out a case of beer at the end of the day. People would uh, take the metal wastebasket and turn it upside down and use it as a drum. And then each person in turn would sing something from their community, basically, something in their own language. One night when it was Andy DeLille's term, somebody called out, sing us a lullaby. Andy began to drum and to sing, and as I turned to look at him, I was surprised to see the tears rolling down his cheeks. He wiped them away with the back of his hand and sobbed. It reminds me of my dad. When my turn came to sing, I offered a heartfelt rendition of a Scottish song, a favorite in Glasgow pubs. I belong to Glasgow dear old Glasgow tune, which was warmly received by a somewhat bewildered audience. I belong to Glasgow, dear old Glasgow town. But there's something the matter with Glasgow. What's happening here may sound pretty straightforward to you, but it's actually pretty radical. The very simple thing of just listening. Today, that's supposed to be regular practice. When you make something about Indigenous people, you talk with them. It's called consultation. But the kind of consultation that Bob and Andy were doing, it's the first of its kind. But there are limits. Because when you filter Indigenous voices through somebody, a lot can get lost. I'm sure that's happening in this podcast. For Bob, it certainly seems to be the case. You have to remember, Bob and Andy were on a mission from the government the same government 
that had had a policy of cultural genocide for a hundred years. I don't have very detailed records from Bob and Andy's trip, so I don't know what people said or what they were comfortable saying in those meetings. Did they tell Bob about government policies of forced relocations, starvation campaigns, being used as medical experiments, kids being taken away from their homes? These weren't distant memories. These things were happening to indigenous communities in the 60s, while Bob and Andy were on their trip. One of the key parts in that policy of cultural genocide was residential schools. The government would take indigenous kids from their families and force them to go to church-run schools. It was a state assimilation policy. I had been at um, residential school, and while I was there, I was told that you know, I was never going to amount to anything and that I was, uh, I was going to be a clerk. Barbara spent her teens at residential school. That's why she dropped out in grade 11. She remembers beatings. She remembers being separated from her brother. Once, she had to scrub a staircase with a toothbrush over and over again for a month. This was her punishment for wearing an outfit that her mother had sent her. She says that the legacy is still something she grapples with more than 60 years later. There were thousands of young people taken away from their parents anywhere from age three, four, up until they were 16. You know, think about that. How do you learn to be a good sister? How do you learn to be um, eventually a mother, a father? All those phases of life that you should have experienced and learned from as a child, as a young teenager, we missed. Canada is only now starting to reckon with this history. There was a Truth and Reconciliation Commission that just wrapped up in 2015. It was led by Senator Murray Sinclair. Seven generations of children went through the residential schools. And each of those children who were educated were told that their lives were not as good as the lives of the non-Aboriginal people of this country. The residential school system was full of physical violence and abuse. The names of 2,800 Indigenous children who died in residential schools were released at an emotion. Survivors remember beatings, rape, torture. One judge said the system was, quote, nothing more than institutionalized pedophilia. And this nation must never forget what it once did to its most vulnerable people. Here's the thing, though. It wasn't a secret. If you look at the historical record, you can find government reports documenting the horrible conditions. You can find them as early as 1907. So if non-Indigenous Canadians were ignorant of residential schools, it's because their ignorance was produced. The media portrayed the schools as wholesome places, places where kids were taught how to be like white Canadians. This 1962 CBC story follows kids at a BC residential school. It's Christmas time. Don't put your hands by your face, will you? Put your hands. Let me see how many you can put your hands right on their desk nicely. That's nice. That looks better that way. Very much better. Is everyone ready now to hear a nice story about Christmas? Because very, very soon now. I'll ask you all to think back to your lesson once again on telephone conversation manners. Can you tell me some of the points that you should remember when you are um, using the telephone? The media just wasn't telling the sort of stories you've heard from Barbara. There's, I think there's a, a too much welfare. Too on much free living. Like this is a 1964 documentary. The filmmakers are talking to white Canadians. They ask them, 
What do you think about indigenous people? I think it's just like unemployment insurance with uh, some class of our white men. They just get too much money and it spoils them. And it's about time they got out and they started to work as men and women and uh, not sit around street corners as they do here. If the Indians of Canada Pavilion would talk about the country's violent colonial history, then it would be the first time most Canadians would hear about it. While Bob and Andy were figuring out the storyline, there were other matters to figure out too. Like, what would the pavilion actually look like? The government had put together a council of nine Indigenous leaders. These men were supposed to bring some kind of Indigenous authority and insight to the project. But one council member later said that the department never had any intention of listening to what they had to say. They often gave the council few options. For example, the pavilion's design, that giant teepee, the department chose that without any real input from the council. So Polly, do you think the Indigenous Advisory Council had any real say? The council really did manage to push back on the process. They managed to shape it in their own way. The department chose the pavilion's overall design, but Indigenous artisans brought it to life. Mohawk steelworkers built it. Kwakiakwak carvers created a 75-foot totem pole outside of the entrance. Denisulina artist Alex Janvier and other indigenous painters covered the pavilion's outer buildings in murals. And Mohawk peacekeepers ran security on the grounds. So back to the storyline, the thing that Bob was putting together. What did he come back with after his trip? Well... With some help from Bob's memoirs and a journalist's visit to the pavilion, here's part of what the storyline sounded like. At the base of the tower was a circular exhibit area depicting the storyline chapter by chapter. The wilderness, the coming of the Europeans, the wars and treaties, the reserves, relations with the government and the church. In another section that, uh, of course, white men got together and fought over the uh, land. They fought for the land that did belong to the Indians, and the Indians, of course, were embroiled in the white man's wars. And here in the pavilion, they tell us that many Indians feel that their fathers were betrayed, and we see on the wall... A struggle to preserve the Indian identity and culture while adapting to modern civilization. The Indian child, when he first goes to school, he has to learn a new language, sometimes two, and quite often he has been forbidden to speak his own Indian language. In the schools, he doesn't learn anything about his history, his ancestors, or his traditions. There's one little inscription on the wall here that says, the sun and the moon mark passing time in the Indian home. At school, minutes are important, and we jump to the bell. As they were leaving the pavilion, visitors found a realistic representation of a campfire. This I remember. Voices are saying goodbye in the many Indian languages. I remember that in particular. They're invited to sit before leaving. The storyline then went, Sit now by the fire and rest, my brother. We will talk of the days to come. You have followed our long trail through many years from the days of our fathers. Let us look into the fire for a vision of the days ahead. Some of my people see in the dark coals a world where the Indian is a half-remembered thing and the ways of the old men are forgotten. But I see another vision, I see an Indian tall and strong in the pride of his heritage. He stands with your son, a man among men. The voices you hear about you are bidding you farewell in the many tongues of my people. The trail we walk is our own, and we bear our own burdens. That is our right. When we reach reach the level ground, we will camp together, you and I. Until that time, walk with us in your heart. This is now the history of more than 600 First Nations in Canada, sponsored by the government and to be shown to millions. But doesn't it sound kind of, I don't know, 1960s kumbaya feeling? Yeah, right? The pavilion didn't go that far in describing the horrors facing Indigenous communities at the time or the government's role in these horrors. But it went further than you might have expected because for most Canadians, it would have been the first time hearing about this history at all. 
Bob says the Indian Advisory Council, the one set up by the department, only asks for minor changes. But Bob still needs to take the storyline to the government for final approval. Here's how he describes it in his memoir. As a courtesy, I took the storyline to the deputy minister. I believe he was relieved to see that he was not being scalped. It's shocking to hear Bob use such a racist, violent term. This stereotype of indigenous savagery. He's not as woke as he thinks he is. But I guess what he's trying to say is that he's surprised the department isn't more upset by the critiques in the storyline. The government is actually expecting something much worse. But even still, the deputy minister isn't fully sold. He wasn't convinced about all this, quote, love and friendship nonsense. Is that all historically correct, he asked? Some of these fellows were pretty brutal. What if an anthropologist from the University of Toronto visits a pavilion and says this was all bullshit? So the government is worried that the pavilion wouldn't stand up to the scrutiny of their kind of experts, the credentialized white anthropologist from a place like the University of Toronto. In other words, indigenous people couldn't really be the experts of their own story. They're just too biased. They're not to be trusted. Then Bob responds, uh, We're not building an anthropologist's pavilion, I told him. This is supposed to be an Indian pavilion, and this is what the Indians want to say. At the end of the day, the government approves the script. This would be the first time that Indigenous people had any kind of real presence at a World's Fair. In the past, they've been displayed as objects or entertainers. But the pavilion would be marketed as Indigenous people sharing their own stories. But that message, even while it sounds very kumbaya, was still threatening to the department. You remember the head of Indian Affairs, Arthur Lang, the father knows best with the wandering hands? He tours the exhibit, and he thinks it makes his apartment look so bad that according to one insider, he quote, just about shit. After the break, the Indians of Canada Pavilion opens its doors. You're listening to Darts and Letters, a show about the politics of academia, ideas, and intellectual life. We're proud to be a new member of the New Books Network. And all this summer, we're playing some highlights from our archives. But like Jay said, we are coming back with regular weekly programming this September. So if you like what you hear and you want to hear that, why don't you subscribe to our podcast? Search Darts and Letters wherever you find your podcasts or go to dartsandletters.ca. Finally, it's April 27th, 1967, and Bob's work is done. From Place des Nations at Expo 67, CBC Radio presents the official opening of the Universal and International Exhibition of 1967 at Montreal, Quebec, Canada. This, the great day, is a golden day of blue sky. It's cool, but it's brilliant. It's just about 52 degrees and it's lovely. Expo is a wonderland. There are pavilions showcasing the latest technology, an amusement park, nonstop concerts. In a spectacular exhibit of our country, you'll see something of our adventure in space. You could try out space travel at the Soviet pavilion. The Brits were showing off mini skirts and rock and roll. It was exciting and Barbara and the other hostesses are standing by in their uniforms. Think 60s airline stewardesses. They're waiting for the first visitors to show up at the Indians of Canada Pavilion. But when the public finally tours the exhibit, they're pissed. Uh, there might be a little bit of bitterness in the Indians of Canada Pavilion. For one thing, the main exhibit in here is treaties, and it becomes quite pointed that Indians of Canada are concerned about... Broken- the Globe and Mail quotes a woman who says, This is horrible. I'm not going to stay here. The Toronto Daily Star called it a, quote, painful embarrassment to the Canadian government and the Canadian pavilion. There are accusations of taking digs at the white man. Even the Queen was bothered. She goes on a tour with Andrew Delisle, and she tells him, we have problems all over. 
Do you think that the pavilion actually embarrassed Canada? I mean, it's hard to say, but it certainly made people uncomfortable. Barbara, the hostess who works at the pavilion, she says it also made people upset. It was really tough. It was really tough because people had so much anger. You know, why? We hadn't done anything wrong. I remember walking up through that tunnel of dark bushes there was this American man hollering at this young woman who happened to be American, First Nations from America. And he was just wailing at her verbally. And I went in and I stopped him. I said, stop. You know, and I took her and I took her down. She was crying. I took her down into our lounge and I sat with her and made her a cup of tea. And I just, I couldn't even comprehend that, that there would be that much of rage. What for? You know, all we were trying to do was tell our story. Despite the backlash, maybe even because of it, the pavilion was actually a huge draw. Three million people came through the doors that summer. It was one of the most visited sites at Expo 67. And as people crowded in, you'll remember, Barbara had to stick to a script. There was so much that was left out, you know. You could point almost anywhere. The suppression of our laws, the suppression of our our culture, um, not being able to go out outside of the house after 9 o'clock at night, not being able to be out of the village. There, there were so many things, you know, that if you wanted... I mean, we could give you a, a course in Canadian, Indian history that would take you probably 12 years. You know, there was a part of me that said, you'll do it in spite of it, you know. It's like, it's like having to, to swim or drown. I don't know how I did it. You know, just another form of, of abuse. Of making people tell that kind of approved well, story. Leaving us without our real story and feeding us, feeding us information that if we didn't have a brain, we would have just spewed out. But if you toured the Indians of Canada Pavilion, you could still find the truth in there somewhere. It was just opaque. It's like having a gauze over the real picture. You know, you you can see things, but you can't see them real clear. Uh, that's what it was like. And if you chose to be around and and chose to spend time with us, you would see more than then you would see past the gauze. If visitors really talked to Barbara and with the other hostesses, the truth would become a little more clear. A bit of the gauze would unravel. Because in these conversations, they'd inevitably veer off the approved script. And that's when Barbara would push things. Barbara would tell visitors of her own Haida history, how generations of her family had gone through residential schools, how they had been stripped of their own stories, their own language. But why wasn't the script, the script that Bob gave Barbara, why wasn't it just more honest, more unflinching? I asked Bob's son Robin that same question. He says he doesn't know. In the end, that's just what the Indian Advisory Council agreed on by consensus. But maybe Barbara offers a partial answer. 
I asked her if she thought the script was milk toast, you know, spineless. And she says it wasn't, not for its time, not for the situation. For the day it wasn't milk toast. But first, she told me, you have to understand something. When you think about First Nations law and the, for the fact that in most places they were verbal and you were taught way, way back, deep time, laws are important because they teach us how to be decent human beings. That's our laws. You follow them, because if you don't, it makes a difference between life and death. Okay? That's really important. So, you come up against a system that has laws that are written. Because they're written, we believe that they have to be better than ours, because ours are not written. And we are taught that it's good to follow laws. So if somebody from authority from Ottawa comes along and tells you that this is how it has to be, yeah, that's how it has to be. But federal laws, like the ones from Ottawa, they have a very different intent than the laws Barbara is talking about. So when you take a step back and you see the devastation Canadian laws have caused, you resist. But Barbara says people are cautious. So when people finally start waking up and going, oh my God, what's happened to us? Do you think they're going to jump out of the plane right away? No. You know, they're going to put out some feelers and see what it feels like and see what the reaction is. It's like learning to walk. You know, you fall down a few times, but you get up again and you keep working, working at it. And so it is with us. The Indians of Canada Pavilion wasn't necessarily dishonest, but it was cautious. Because most Canadians just weren't ready to look honestly at their country. And many didn't believe what they were hearing. Because fundamentally, they thought Indigenous people couldn't be trusted. They couldn't be experts in telling their own stories. Or Canada's story. The government, they never really wanted Indigenous people to be those experts. Because Indigenous people offered one story, the government wanted another. It wanted a story of a noble people, a people wrestling with their place in modernity. But as we've seen, the Indigenous men and women who worked at the pavilion found countless ways to resist. Barbara and the other hostesses told stories that weren't written into the script. The council pushed to have Indigenous artists fairly represented, and Bob insisted that the department just talk with actual Indigenous people. The people at the pavilion subverted the noble, savage narrative. And they told a story closer to the truth, even if it was still wrapped in gauze. The question of who gets to count as an expert is central to how we understand history, especially in colonial states. At the end of my time with Barbara, she told me something that I heard from a lot of the hostesses I interviewed. That if she had told the story, it would have focused on something a lot different. Resilience would be the underlying factor for everything. Because you think about it, you know, starting in 1400s, and here we are in the 2000s now. And we're still here. That's what it would be about for me. 
how we've come through all this and how we still have our old laws that we remember and and that are they were heavily entrenched in making us who we are and that's the story that's the story This episode of Cited was produced by Paul Ilger with editing from Gordon Caddock and Sam Fenn. David Tobias is our production manager, and Dakota Coop is our graphic designer. Music by Mike Barber and Sam Fenn, Kantawinahawe Agwa Sasne Women Singers, and our theme was composed by Mike Barber. Cited's executive producers are Sam Fenn and myself, Gordon Caddock. If you like what you heard, do us a favor, give us a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you found this podcast, and why don't you send it to a friend who might like it? If you've got feedback, we can be reached at info at citedmedia.ca. You can also stay in touch with us at Twitter, which is at citedpodcast, and on facebook.com forward slash citedpodcast. Our website is citedpodcast.com, and you can find a lot more stuff there, so give it a look. Cited is partly funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. This episode was made possible with a grant to discuss contested historical commemoration. This project was advised by Professor Eagle Glassheim. Thank you to all the hostesses who shared their time with us, including Barbara Wilson, Janice Antoine, Velma Robinson, and Venus Starr. Thanks to Romney Copeman and the Delisle family, as well as the Marjbanks family, who shared their father's memoir. Thanks also to the Russ Moses Archives and to Russ's son, John Moses, to Doreen Emanuel and the estate of George Manuel. His memoir has just been reprinted. It's called A Fourth World, an Indian Reality. Thanks also to the York University Archives, to Jane Griffith and to Greg Spence, and finally to Clinton L.G. Morin and L. Manuel Baiklin, who provided production help in Ottawa. Cited is produced out of the Centre for Ethics at the University of Toronto. That's on the traditional land of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. We're also produced out of the Michael Smith Laboratories at the University of British Columbia. That's on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Tune in next Wednesday for our next episode.